Hello, and welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is Episode 20, The RAVE Trial. This was a randomized, placebo-controlled trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in July of 2010. It compared cytoxin, or cyclophosphamide, against rituxin, or rituximab, in a non-inferiority trial for the treatment of ANCA-associated vasculitis. I'm a big fan of this trial. It's straightforward, it's important, and it's changed our practice. It's also fun to talk about because of the many questions that it left unanswered. So for background, for 40 years, the standard therapy of choice for ANCA-associated vasculitis was cyclophosphamide, plus a lot of steroids. There are a number of problems with this. For one, not everyone improved. For two, there was a lot of relapse. And for three, cyclophosphamide is a pretty toxic therapy. It's old school chemotherapy, and it deserves the reputation it has. For a while, people didn't think that you could do a trial pitting cyclophosphamide against another therapy because patients with ANCA-associated vasculitis are sick. In one study, there was a 90% mortality at two years if patients went untreated. So you can see how a two-year trial not given the standard of care would be frowned upon. So as I said, this was a placebo-controlled, double-blind, randomized controlled trial. It was a multi-center trial and nine centers around the country. To get into this trial, you had to carry a diagnosis of granulomatosis polyangiitis, also known as Wegner's, which I'll be calling GPA from now on, or microscopic polyangiitis, which I'll be calling MPA from now on. Sorry for the acronym overload. Patients with GPA are typically proteinase 3 positive, or PR3, and patients with MPA are typically MPO positive, or myeloperoxidase. From now on, I'll be calling these PR3 and MPO, and having one of them was a requirement to get into the study. Patients also had to have severe disease and a Birmingham vasculitis activity score of greater than 3, so I had to have severe disease and active disease. You could be a new diagnosis, or you could be a relapse. Now, half the patients wound up getting rituximab. They got 375 milligrams every week for four weeks, and then they also got placebo cytoxin in an oral fashion. The placebo group got cytoxin orally, and then they got placebo rituximab. Neither the patients nor the doctors who cared for them were aware of which group the patients were in. Then for maintenance therapy, both groups were switched between three and six months if the patients were in remission to azathioprine at two milligrams per kilogram per day. Both groups got the same glucocorticoid regimen, which is one to three pulses of methylprednisolone. There's no specific evidence for this, but we all do it. Followed by a prednisone taper going from one mg per kg per day to zero over five months, which was somewhat on the aggressive side of tapers, but there's good reason to think that this is appropriate. The main assessment measures were the Birmingham vasculitis activity score, pretty broad, covers a lot of bases, the vasculitis damage index, which is more for chronic damage, then the SF36, which is a patient-reported outcomes measure, tells you overall how your patient is thriving or not thriving. The endpoints were good, but not the best. So the primary endpoint was a BVAS score of zero and a successful prednisone taper to zero at six months. That is definitely an accomplishment in vasculitis. For a BVAS to be zero, patients essentially have to have no active disease whatsoever. And to say that we had to get them off of prednisone, that's a laudable goal. That being said, these aren't the best endpoints like death or the development of morbidity. Secondary endpoints were reasonably good as well. BVAS of zero once the prednisone was less than 10, cumulative doses of glucocorticoids, adverse events, and SF36 scores. As I've said again and again, this is a drug trial. The statistics were all well thought out and pretty much appropriate. 
There is one caveat to that. Now the authors, for understandable reasons, designed this as a non-inferiority trial. So what does that mean? Well, instead of trying to prove that rituximab was better than cytoxin, they just said, let's show that rituxin is just as good. The benefit of this is that you can enroll less patients. Proving that something's better requires a higher bar, tighter confidence intervals, and ultimately a lot more people enrolled in your study. So this makes studies more feasible. The downside is that the study wasn't powered to prove that rituximab was better, and it didn't. Primary analysis was performed by the intention to treat method, and they did it the right way. Patients who dropped out before six months were considered to have a treatment failure with respect to their primary endpoint. I should note that people who did have a severe flare crossed over to the other therapy, and there was actually no loss to follow-up, so everyone who started completed the trial. The trial began in 2004 and concluded in 2008, and they ultimately enrolled a total of 197 patients. It's quite a lot of vasculitis. So who made it into this trial? The gender ratio was more or less even, but most patients, greater than 90% were white, which is unfortunate. The majority of patients had GPA, over three quarters. About half were new diagnoses, half were relapsed disease. Most patients had PR3 positivity, which you'd expect, and the BVAS scores coming in were a little over eight, which is pretty high. This was a relatively sick cohort coming in. That's also played out by the disease manifestations. Half had pulmonary involvement, including 30% with diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. Half had renal involvement, including over half, which had elevated creatinine clearance. And a quarter had neurologic involvement. So all that being said, what did they find? Well, it's pretty straightforward. 64% of the patients in the rituximab group reached the primary endpoint. Remember, that's a BVAS of zero and successful completion of the taper by six months. 53% of the patients in the cytoxin group met this endpoint. So that's a difference of 11% favoring rituximab. However, as a non-inferiority trial, it wasn't powered to prove this difference, and it didn't. So all we can say is that rituximab was no worse than cytoxin, and cytoxin was no worse than rituximab. There is one caveat to that, however. In a pre-specified subgroup analysis comparing the patients who had relapsing disease to those who came in as new diagnoses, the patients with relapsing disease were actually significantly better off in the rituximab group. 67% in the rituximab group versus 42% in the cyclophosphamide group had met the primary endpoint. That was significant at the level of P equals 0.01, so we can say that for patients who are having relapsing disease, rituximab is a better option. Before I go on, let's point out how that's not totally fair. The people who are having relapsing disease are also people who had been treated by cytoxin. If you look back at table one, of the patients who had relapsed, over 80% had already received cyclophosphamide. So what you're doing there is you're taking a group who'd gotten cyclophosphamide, then relapsed, and then you're either giving them cyclophosphamide or rituximab. Now we're already selecting patients who we know didn't do well with cytoxin. So is it that surprising that rituximab did work better for them? The paper then goes on to do a number of subgroup analyses, major renal disease patients, alveolar hemorrhage, severity of flares, damage and quality of life, Overall, it's all about the same. The study wasn't really powered to prove any of these, and ultimately, both treatments seemed to help, and in both treatments, there was a significant number of patients who didn't improve completely. There was one interesting secondary analysis that I wanted to note. So virtually everyone in this trial was ANCA positive. Among the patients who were PR3 positive, 47% who received rituximab had their ANCA status resolve, whereas 24% who got cyclophosphamide had their ANCA status resolve. I think that's pretty interesting. 
So it seems like rituximab is better at causing the ANCAs to resolve than cyclophosphamide. That's not necessarily a patient-centric outcome. Nobody comes in asking for you to fix their ANCAs. They want you to fix the bleeding in their lungs. But it is something to note that perhaps there's some mechanistic reason for rituximab working well here that cyclophosphamide isn't quite addressing. Really, one of the most surprising findings of this study is that there was no difference in the total number of adverse events. There are 31 in the rituximab group and 33 in the control group that got cyclophosphamide. Again, I think this mostly speaks to the power of the trial. When there was one death, there are two people who got cancer, a couple people got leukopenia. There just wasn't enough patients to show a difference. Most physicians will tell you that rituximab is significantly better tolerated than cyclophosphamide. That's especially true for people who are in their fertility years. So overall, this is a good trial. It was well done, and it answered the question it set out to answer, proving that rituximab was certainly not inferior to cyclophosphamide. Couple quick caveats. One is that they didn't discuss the exclusion criteria fully in the methods. If you look at the supplemental material, the patients with diffuse alveolar hemorrhage requiring ventilatory support and the patients with creatinine clearance worse than four were excluded. So this doesn't apply to your sick ICU patient. Another is that patients in this trial didn't get plasmapheresis. Especially in patients who are quite ill, plasma exchange seems to be a good therapy. There's an ongoing trial to assess the question of when plasma exchange should be used, but a lot of physicians will use that, and it wasn't something that was done standard in this trial. And then last but not least, the real limitations of this study. It just didn't answer a lot of the questions that we need to know. For one, how long should patients be getting rituximab? They had a continuation arm from these patients where they went out to 18 months. It looked like rituximab worked reasonably well, but they didn't give it as maintenance therapy in that trial. Mainritz in one trial compared rituximab to azathioprine as maintenance therapy, and both seemed to work reasonably well, but the patients in the azathioprine group didn't get quite as much as we typically use, so there's a lot of questions over whether or not that trial actually proved anything about rituximab. Another question is how much rituximab to give. In this trial, they got 375 milligrams every week for four weeks. A lot of investigators these days don't even do that. We'll give a gram at what day one and a gram two weeks later. We'll do 500 and then 500. There's no data either direction, and again, this trial was not set out to prove that. As I just alluded to earlier, which indications deserve which drug? Some clinicians will favor cytoxin for neurologic disease or perhaps for aggressive renal disease or diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, but there's really no data to suggest that. The patients in this trial did just as well on rituximab as they did on cyclophosphamide, admittedly with some of the people who had those severe manifestations not being included. What about patients who are ANCA negative? They were excluded from this trial, so we don't necessarily know if either of these worked. That's especially relevant when you remember that the patients in the rituximab trial had a lot of their PR3 ANCA positivity resolve. I'd like to say that we went on to answer all these questions in rapid fashion, but unfortunately, that is just not the case. Eight years later, we still don't know. The up-to-date article on this is great. It's written by a couple authors, and right in the beginning they say, the authors do not agree about whether to give cyclophosphamide or rituximab as initial therapy. We still don't really know. There's some people who give both. There's some people that favor one or the other. There's some people that apply them selectively, depending on the indication. A lot of this is voodoo. The bottom line is that we know they both seem to be about as good as each other. And in my personal practice, I favor rituximab just because it has a better side effect profile. That may not be the most fiscally responsible decision, since rituximab is many tens of thousands of dollars. But if I had ankylosis vasculitis, I would want to get rituximab.
There is still a lot of work, and in the future I'm hoping to talk about the Mainritzen 2 trial, which just came out, describing a couple different ways to administer rituximab. For now though, thanks again for tuning in. I'm looking forward to being back, and I'm excited to talk next week about a much less well-designed paper on sarcoidosis and the value of the ACE level. Thanks again, have a great week.